On the 22nd of February, 2011, just a few minutes before the end of the workday lunch hour, the city of Christchurch, New Zealand was struck by a magnitude 6.3 earthquake. The city center, a major business district, took the brunt of the damage. A magnitude 5.5 aftershock came two hours later, causing more destruction, especially to the buildings already weakened by the initial shaking. 185 people were killed that day, most of them in or around collapsing buildings. 80% of the city center was reduced to rubble, and tens of thousands of lives were disrupted for months and years, if not forever. What does this have to do with Utah? There was soil liquefaction in Christchurch on a massive scale, and it was pretty pervasive. And it was the soil liquefaction, in fact, it was responsible for a lot of the problems that occurred in the city. Brady Cox, an earthquake engineer and professor of engineering at Utah State University, was in Christchurch following the quake. You might remember from our last episode that the Wasatch Front is also vulnerable to the same kind of liquefaction that Brady saw in Christchurch. And that's not the only similarity. Most of the buildings that collapsed in New Zealand were URMs, unreinforced masonry. And 20% of our occupied buildings are also URMs, which, by the way, is far more than there were in Christchurch. But one of the biggest lessons we can learn is about the long-term effects of an earthquake. The shaking and liquefaction in Christchurch resulted in water lines, sewer lines, gas lines, and telecommunication breaking, making even the still-livable homes miserable in the months that followed. You know, when I went back, even after the second and the third and fourth earthquakes, etc., I mean, there were people who were still using outhouses in these nice neighborhoods with beautiful homes for months and months, a year even. It's easy to think about earthquakes in terms of what we do during the shaking and in the immediate aftermath. Earthquake drills and 72-hour kits prepare us for that. But when entire business districts are destroyed, homes are collapsed or filled with mud or completely without utilities for months, that's a different kind of devastation. It's been over 10 years since the Christchurch earthquake, and their recovery is still ongoing. It's possible to both be prepared to survive an earthquake and at the same time not be prepared to bounce back to be ready to respond but not be resilient in the long term. It's also possible to become more resilient. Like we mentioned last episode, the odds of a 6.75 magnitude earthquake or greater striking the Wasatch Fault in the next 50 years are still basically just a coin toss. Luckily, resilience doesn't have to be a gamble. If we take the right steps together, we can stop hoping the big one doesn't happen and focus on how we can be resilient when it does. This is the Your Utah, Your Future podcast. Envision Utah's podcast about how we make sure Utah is a great place to live now, for decades to come, and even after an earthquake. More than 52,000 Utahns helped shape a vision for Utah in 2050. From that vision, we learned in the face of natural disasters like wildfires, flooding, landslides, and especially earthquakes like the big one, Utahns want to be able to bounce back. We want our communities to be livable again. We want our jobs and, more importantly, our families and friends to be able to stay in Utah. In our last episode, we talked all about the science of earthquakes in Utah. Today, we're talking about some of the most important things we can do to make Utah not just better prepared for, but resilient after a big earthquake. Our goal here is not to scare everyone. Instead, we want to spur our imagination to help us understand the true nature of the risks we face so that we can take innovative steps to mitigate those risks and build a Utah that's resilient in the face of a major disaster. Over the last year, Envision Utah has been working closely with the Utah Seismic Safety Commission and other partners like FEMA to find concrete steps to make Utah more resilient to an earthquake. 
So the Utah Seismic Safety Commission has provided five recommendations, and I believe that these recommendations will help save life, property, environment, and commerce. And I think they're important to keeping Utah strong and vibrant following a large earthquake. You might recognize that voice from last time. That's John Crofts, the Utah Earthquake Program Manager with the Utah Division of Emergency Management. He also staffs the Seismic Safety Commission. Number one, keep the water flowing. Two, keep our children safe. Three, keep our communities and markets informed. Four, keep our buildings standing. And five, keep Utah ready to respond. For the next two episodes, we're going to dive into each of these recommendations. And of course, these aren't the only things that need to happen, but they might be the most important things to start with. And at the top of the list, water. You know that our water system is very dynamic. It's very complicated. There's a lot of different issues that go into delivering water and it costs a lot of money to be able to, you know, make this different infrastructure resilient to uh, seismic events. Darren Hess is the Assistant General Manager of Operations for the Weber Basin Water Conservancy District. He spent his career focusing on hazard mitigation and disaster resilience for our water. Resilient water infrastructure is one of the most critical needs in the face of a major earthquake. As it stands, water and sewer services across the Wasatch Front are projected to be disrupted for more than a million people for many months after a major quake. Four of our largest aqueducts, the Alpine, Davison Weber, Salt Lake, and Jordan aqueducts, are not only aging, but are also located along major faults, landslide areas, high ground shaking areas, and liquefaction zones, putting them at high risk for significant damage. In total, these four aqueducts carry water to 2 million residents. Making these resilient is no small task, but there are two techniques we can use to mitigate our risk. So one option is to install a parallel pipeline, parallel to this existing aqueduct, but in a different location so that the soil you know, around these pipes does not operate similarly. You know the adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket? That's the idea here. At Weber Basin Conservancy District, they've already done the research for one such pipeline. So we've actually designed a second pipeline coming out of Weber Canyon to our large treatment plant in Layton, and it follows a different alignment than the old aqueduct. So it wouldn't be meant to totally replace the aqueduct, but it's meant to be able to function and definitely deliver drinking water flows. You know, if somebody can't water their lawn, we're not as concerned after an earthquake event, but we do want them to have drinking water. 621,000 Utah residents depend on this aqueduct, and the parallel pipeline would keep drinking water flowing even after a major earthquake. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as just building a parallel pipeline for every major aqueduct. But, you know, that project, that's just from Weber Canyon to our treatment plant in Layton. And we're probably talking $60 million for that pipeline only being a couple miles long, whereas the Davis Aqueduct is 21 miles long. The other technique is to strengthen the existing aqueducts by hardening the most critical joints of the pipeline where they cross the fault or are vulnerable to high ground shaking. This includes welding and repairing separated joints, reinforcing joints that are likely to fail, As a bonus, though, taking care of these joints also reduces the risk of flooding or even landslides that could be caused by a leaking aqueduct. The total cost for improving these four pipelines would be approximately $192 million. Not pocket change for sure, but to put it in perspective, it's less than the cost of building three of the seven freeway-style interchanges that are planned for Bangor Highway. 
There are also other seismic upgrades that water conservancy districts like Darren's are actively working on. So we have a 12 million gallon tank uh, that's kind of built into the hillside and that stores 12 million gallons of water from our treatment plant in Layton. But what happens during an earthquake is you get a leak in your pipeline system, it ruptures during the earthquake, and then you start to drain out all that water. And so what we have done is we installed a seismically retrofitted valve downstream of the tank so that when it feels the seismic wave hit it, it closes immediately to ensure that that 12 million gallons is preserved for drinking water purposes, firefighting purposes, and those types of things that we know are going to happen. Intense shaking could also damage our gas and fuel lines, making widespread fires one of the top concerns following an earthquake. On top of that, impassable roads and other hazards will likely hinder first responders, meaning it could be hours or even days before they can provide aid. Imagine this, though. What if we had a few seconds of warning right before an earthquake to shut off these critical utilities? As kids, you know, we're all used to, oh yeah, you see lightning, you count how many seconds, and then the thunder comes up. Once again, that's Dr. Keith Coper. He's a professor and the director of the University of Utah Seismograph Stations. He also chairs the Seismic Safety Commission. So whenever you see lightning, you could make a pretty good prediction that thunder is about to happen. If you wanted to predict thunder, what you could do is make this really great lightning monitoring network. And then whenever you saw the lightning, you would know to be ready for the thunder. And that's what this earthquake early warning is. What he's talking about is an earthquake early warning system. Lightning can be used to predict thunder because the flash of light travels much faster than the sound waves. In the same way, some of the waves of energy that come from an earthquake's hypocenter, which is the point in the crust where the rupture occurs, travel faster than others. We can detect these waves before the surface waves, which could give us 10, 20, maybe even 30 seconds of warning before the real shaking of an earthquake starts. So it might not sound like much, but there's actually quite a bit that you can do in that time. And one thing you can imagine is trains stopping. So the train operator gets a signal, there's shaking coming, immediately stop the train. Another thing that could happen is somebody's having surgery, the medical facility gets a warning and everybody doing a medical procedure can stop and wait for the waves to pass. Another thing that could happen is gas pipelines. If they're plugged into the systems, they could automatically be shut off to prevent the possibility of these terrible fires, which often happen after earthquakes. Early warning systems are already in operation in different parts of the world, including California, Washington, and Oregon. But there are two key differences between those states and Utah, the type of fault and our proximity to the fault. Remember, the Wasatch Fault is what's called a normal fault. Its pressure comes from the natural forces pulling the Earth apart, not pushing it together like the subduction zones found along the coastal states. Currently, there is no early warning system being used on a normal fault line, and it's unclear how much time, if any, the system would be able to give Utahns because of how close we are to the Wasatch Fault. 85% of the state's population lives literally on top of, or at least adjacent to, the Wasatch Fault. Some good news, though. In just the last few weeks, the state funded a study to determine if this kind of early warning system is feasible in Utah. Hopefully, from this, we can one day soon have a system in place that gives us even a few critical seconds to prevent some of the most serious damage. In 2020, just about a month after the MagnaQuake, 
Envision Utah polled Utahns about how long they thought it would take to get back to normal after the big one. The options were intervals ranging from less than a week to more than a year. What would you guess? Well, most Utahns, 71%, predicted it will take six months or less. A full quarter said we'll be back to normal in less than a month. But if the earthquake happened today, estimates predict 27,000 households still won't have electricity for a month. That's after more than half the Wasatch Front loses electricity immediately. 480,000 households, well over a million people, will be without water immediately after the quake. But three months later, on day 90, we'll have restored water to only a third of those households. Restoring sewer lines will take two to three times longer than water, meaning people could easily be depending on outhouses more than a year out. Plus, an estimated 60,000 buildings will be red-tacked, meaning they're completely damaged, either collapsed or rendered totally unsafe. This includes huge sections of Salt Lake City, where as many as two-thirds of buildings will be red-tacked. Entire city blocks may be off-limits. Do you really think we can get back to normal after all that in just six months? The recommendations we worked on with the Seismic Safety Commission are aimed at fixing these vulnerabilities. We've talked about two recommendations today, water infrastructure and the earthquake early warning system, but there are three more, and they all have to do with our buildings. Again, here's Brady Cox. Right now, all of our building codes are designed around life safety, which is super important. We don't want buildings to collapse and kill people. That's our number one goal as engineers. But number two, we need to start thinking about our community resilience and being able to reoccupy, reuse quickly, because you can prevent many people from dying in an earthquake, but that doesn't mean that your society and your life will be able to continue as normal after the earthquake. And Christchurch was just a prime example of how we largely kept people from dying, but our community was revealed as being completely unresilient. When we said we weren't trying to scare everyone, that was maybe the tiniest bit untrue. A little fear might be healthy. Fear not just about the moment of the earthquake, but about the months and even years afterwards. Because if we start to take the right steps now, we can be in a position to bounce back quickly. We can get ready so that we aren't waiting months for water or using outhouses for a year. We can become more resilient. Next time on the Your Utah, Your Future podcast, we finish off our series on earthquakes talking about our buildings and some other important earthquake issues. For now, thanks for listening. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who lives in Utah. This podcast is an Envision Utah production made possible by Envision Utah's generous supporters and the many, many Utahns who are working with us on disaster resilience in our state. This episode was written and produced by Shayla Adams with Nate Brown and me, Jason Brown. Special thanks to our expert guests, John Crofts, Darren Hess, Dr. Keith Coper, and Dr. Brady Cox. We'll see you all next time.